Welcome everyone <clears throat> on this beautiful evening, coming here in this crowded room. Many of you having to listen to someone, and you know you know everything I have to say already, but don't blame me, you came here voluntarily. <laughs> How many people are here at the center for the very first time? A show of hands, please. Thank you. Um, anyone on this side of the room not here for the very first time? Thank you. How many people who, uh, who've come, who have been here before, but have never done anything with me? Let's say a practice group or retreat. Good, I can use old material, that's great. <laughs> the rest of you, you're gonna have to suffer along. In fact, recently, <clears throat> not here, somewhere else, while teaching someone who's been coming to retreats and stuff for quite a few years, said, you say the same things again and again. And I paused after I recovered from bruised feelings. Uh, I said, you're right, I do. Have you done it yet? <laughs> Uh, when you do, I'll stop. I'll have to, but whatever. Um, how many people are really very, very new to insight meditation? Show of hands again. Thank you. How many people, well, that's enough. <laughs> uh, I just needed a, it's crude, but a sense of who I'm speaking to, to try to relate to all of us. Um, those of you who know me for quite a few years, and I see a fair number of you here, um, I don't really rehearse talks or get them ready. For many, many years, my way is to um, I was trained this way many years ago um, to get a theme. If I can get a theme and then just my preparation is to get s s uh, silent before uh, starting to speak like this evening. That's why I like to come to the sittings that I'm giving a talk on. Okay. Uh, and as long as I have a theme uh, the teacher who started me this way, um, he said, you should do it as if you're a jazz musician. That is, get your theme, don't rehearse, and then just blow. You know, just let it flow spontaneously. Now, it's not as if there's, there is something magical about something that comes out of the silent mind. I acknowledge that, still don't understand it. But in a certain way, I'm preparing all the time. So I don't think I need special... This evening I'm going to get ready and make a, because to me there's not much separation between this and how I live and this is what I enjoy. And one of the main, perhaps finally the main thing that I love about it is learning. I know if you read books it'll be talking about suffering and stress reduction. I'm all for it. And does it happen? Sure. But what has kept me on the path for so many years has been 
um, a real joy of learning. And tonight what came up as a possible theme, see where that goes, is to put CIMC and these teachings in a way in an ancient context. Uh, for thousands of years in Asia and sometimes in, uh, in European cultures as well, uh, these were referred to CIMC would be a school. This is a school. Now, I've known that for quite a, for me it is, it's always been a school. But all my colleagues, not just here, but everywhere said, don't call it a school because everyone has had mixed experiences or terrible experiences in school and you'll just clear the joint out by calling it a school. Um, so I haven't. Uh, but it's a school, so then what is it that we're here to learn? Uh, it's a wisdom path, and wisdom, as you know, is a term most people think it's good, and there are many definitions of it. Uh, it's a little bit, more, it has a specific meaning in the Buddhist teaching. Uh, it has to do with understanding yourself to begin with, uh, because everything that follows from that deep understanding or a lack of it is what your life becomes to a great extent. Granted, there are other people involved in situations, conditions, and so forth, but it's sort of making a U-turn, as I see it, where most of us are very good at, the outs at looking outside or thinking, uh, and this is asking us not to stop doing that, uh, to turn around and shine the light, at least sometimes, into that which is doing the seeing and the hearing and the talking and the living. Who is that? What is that that's doing all that? Um, the Buddha is very often, some of you may have read this, um, referred to as a world physician. And he's the world physician in that what he's curing the world of, or it's, it's called that, is of spiritual disease. Uh, the disease that comes from uh, ignorance. And ignorance here is not lack of knowledge, information. You can be illiterate and wise. You can be a full professor uh, and ignorant in, these, in this sense. It's ignorant of your own mind. You don't fully uh, understand that the source of your, finally, of your happiness and suffering to a great extent uh, comes from inside. And that can lead to a trap, of course, because then people become preoccupied with their inside and neglect the outside. Um, let's go back to school. Uh, in what way is CIMC a school? And it's not exclusively CIMC. This is one. I would say old retreat centers, which have somewhat different function. If this were out in the country, uh, it would have a somewhat different mission. Finally, not really. All of it is about the same. The reason the teachings are timeless because the Buddha seized upon suffering as the key element in the teaching. What causes it? Is there an end to it? And if so, what's the medicine we can take to put an end to it? So that's why it's a kind of medical model, which is true. But for me, it's also an educational model 
because among the ancients, the great physicians were also great educators. There wasn't that split. For example, we call uh, what are the health care, the health care issue now, uh, how to finance it, and you know all the things that we hear about Obama and all that. It's not really the uh, health care that we're, it's disease care. Uh, because there isn't very much education. It's starting to change. Uh, how do we cause these diseases? And now there's more of an interest in nutrition, how we live, and you hear all this lifestyle and so forth, and uh, run around and uh, eat vegetables and so forth. Uh, sure. <laughs> By the way, I am ve I've been vegetarian for almost half a century. I do not think it is the only diet for everyone. I think that would be ridiculous. Uh, there are ethical and uh, ecological reasons for it, granted. But uh, in fact, part of what the learning I'm going to uh, hint at tonight, we'll get, at least get this subject opened up, has to do with each person has to discover the right way for them to eat. And it's not necessarily gonna, it's not gonna necessarily come from an expert or a book, even though you can, of course, listen to that and learn from it. But finally, the test will be your own body and your own ability to look into your own body and to, uh, in many cases, revive the intelligence that the body initially has that perhaps has been uh, stunted or thwarted. It's been uh, misused so that the body needs help to regain it. And then, of course, there are diseases. And there's some wonderful research going on and all that. It's not to stop that by, by any means. So school. Uh, in Asia, it's quite common to refer to different schools. Uh, a lot of my earliest training, the first 10 years, was in the Zen, Zen. And there are different schools of Zen. Sometimes there are great rivalries and uh, in in Japan, it would be martial arts. In China as well, it used to be uh, tea. And there, sometimes the rivalry is healthy, and sometimes it's like the Republican and Democratic Party. You know, just so that can deteriorate. But I don't mean this to be that we have something special going on here at CIMC, and we're number one. Not at all, because this school finally is about an attitude towards living uh, that can be furthered. First of all, hearing about it, if you need to hear about it, and then if it makes some sense to you, uh, life is the great teacher. And it's tireless. It's teaching 24-7. Uh, I'll try to give you a few examples this evening. So it's a school in that sense. Life is teaching us, but uh, there have to be students to learn this. Now, when we think of school, because I've actually asked people questions this, and I've looked into my own life, for me, school, for the first part of my life, meant a, a building that you go into, and it usually had to do with books, teachers, blackboards, uh, things you take home, homework, then you come in, tests, and so forth. And you, we learn how to count and how to read, and it starts with how to write and the alphabet, and then it progresses to this town, I don't have to explain. So that's one kind of school. And if you're good at that, it's, a, it's called intelligence. And it is a kind of intelligence where we can use the conceptual, rational mind in ways that are astonishingly brilliant. Uh, actually, 
the theme I got tonight while I was sitting here is what we're doing is a re-education and I don't know whether maybe you can come up with a better term than I've been able to uh, there was the Industrial Revolution about 200 years ago uh, is this the information revolution or the digital revolution whatever the term would be something is going on uh, and there's uh, something radical change is happening people are being displaced old occupations that were once uh, very fulfilling and useful and now obsolete new occupations new ways to make money new ways to suffer in other words <laughs> and new ways to become wealthy and to get fame and also to do wonderful things it's always it's both it's not to okay so there is a form of human intelligence that we have worshipped I would say I don't think the term is too strong. If you can think clearly and learn from typically from books and teachers and then apply it and come up in the scientific, technological, metal, medical, literary, and so forth worlds, uh, you get acknowledgement, tremendous acknowledgement. So that part of the human brain has been given tremendous amount of importance, which it should have. Whereas the brain has got a lot of, it's an amazing instrument as we're finding out. Uh, and much of it has not been developed. So it may be that I'm talking about that part tonight. I don't know. If any scientists here, you, might, you would know better than I. Um, so that has been called intelligence. And that has been honed and refined for a long time. And we've gotten very, very good at it. Very good at it. And the creations that have come out of it in science, technology, the arts, and so forth, um, I don't have to explain. Do the computer alone? It's just what? I, I don't. How does that work? Okay. And it brings with it problems, as every revolution does. There's some benefits and there's some problems. And typically, after the ro romance fa uh, phase fades, we'll get into more balance. Right now. Uh, wherever I look, there's someone with something in their hand. The, sometimes I feel I'm the only person listening to birds chirp. Poor birds. They're so, no, they don't care. They really, they really don't. And the trees don't care. And the people walking up the street, first of all, they don't care because they have something in their hand. It's either in their ears or in their hand or uh, driving with three or four things, you know, all at the same time. Uh, and so, and then they're always new. The innovations are rapid and fa everything is fast and complex, perhaps too much for us as humans. I don't know. But I don't mean this as a, a critique tonight. It's more, I want to put a way of looking at this. I, for me, um, what draws me to the Buddhist teaching, it's not really a religion in, the in, a, in a certain sense for me. I'm not, it can be for you. That's fine with me. Uh, it's not an affiliation. If you ask me, are you a Buddhist? I don't, use that. I don't use that term for myself. I don't have an image of myself as a Buddhist. Or some people can comfortably say, speaking as a Buddhist, uh, commenting on something or other. Uh, when 9-11 happened, I was asked to my views on 9-11 as a Buddhist by a certain Dharma magazine. And it was a telephone request, and I was stunned. I couldn't answer. I just felt like 
I just couldn't picture myself saying, well, speaking as a Buddhist, um, so I said, no, I can't. I can tell you what, how I see what has happened, and clearly I've been very influenced by the teachings and my experience of following these teachings and what meditation has helped me learn. Then what the magazine didn't want, they said, okay. Uh, they went to someone else who could. I don't know when the holidays are. <laughs> not only that, I don't care. I've already been through that with Orthodox Judaism. Do I, do I have to go through that again? I don't want to. If you want to, good. For some people, it works well. It, not for me. So for me, it's more of a way, capital W-A-Y. It's a way of living, a guide to living. And it's so clear, whether you label you want to put on the Buddhist teaching, that he's, it's has a great affinity with the modern world, in with modern science in particular, where he puts out teachings and also again and again and again encourages people to test it. Test it. Don't just, just belief is not, uh, that's nothing. You can believe anything and it can give you a sense of security. I believe the moon is made out of cream cheese. Do you really believe it? I really do. Good for you. Uh, if it's dispelled and you get all anxious, you mean it's not made out of cream cheese? Um, so we have lots of beliefs. We don't investigate them because they make us feel good. And they give us, I would say, a false sense of security. Sometimes it's good enough. Like if a, sometimes people have such a hard time, whatever works, I'm all for it. But the Buddha is not teaching a belief system. You don't have to believe. Uh, you have to have a tentative, tentative conviction that it's possible that some of what you're hearing in these teachings may actually deliver what they're supposed to deliver suffering and the end of suffering, psychological suffering. So this particular school, uh, I would say a hallmark of it is there's another form of intelligence. I'm using modern terminology. It would be called prajna or panya in the, in the ancient languages. Um, to me, it's a form of human intelligence. We've already I hope you understand, and I'm not. I sincerely mean it. I have enormous respect for the miracle of conceptual intelligence, and then now there's a you know you know there's a movement emotional intelligence. There's some people who have emotional intelligence. Uh, I have a son-in-law who has incredible body intelligence. He doesn't read anything, which is hard for me to believe. You don't want to read any. Here's a good book. It would help you with what you're talking about. But his bodily intelligence is, is fantastic. There are people, so there, to me, there are many kinds of intelligence. That is, ways of knowing aspects of being alive that are useful and fulfilling for the person and make life worth living and make life worth living for others that come out of this ability to do this. So then, what am I talking about here? Um, here, whether you call it wisdom or discernment, uh, it's learning the art of living, which can become the biggest cliche in town, because everyone approves of wisdom. Uh, I would say we're learning how to live. If I, if I make that statement, I have no reason to hesitate about it. Uh, the Buddha, in ordinary language, is saying, as I understand it, human race, you don't know how to live. Let me give you a few hints. Look at all the torment and sorrow 
that is so unnecessary. I just was watching the news before all this in Egypt, wherever you look. Uh, but there it is. So we have learned how to master technology, science, the arts, any, it's endless. Arch medicine, dentistry, whatever you want to talk about. It's clear that our track record regarding living is a bit faulty, would you say? If you won't give it an F, I would say D plus. Uh, we don't know how to live together. It's very hard for us to live together. And I'm not going to put forward um, that what we're learning here is going to save the world. Great if it did. And I do see something picking up where people are starting to realize limitations of certain kinds of in, the use of certain kinds of intelligence and at the beginning to inquire and to search there is there more to life which used to be called a pro, within the province of religion. Um, here again I, I'm going to just say it once obviously this is my bias this does not stand for other teachers here or other Vipassana teachers uh, it's my what I've how, what makes it alive for me um, the art of living, to me, is something that no one can ever fully master. In my travels and training in Asia, I met just one teacher. Uh, one Zen, I didn't meet him, I met, he, had been, he was already dead. But there were disciples, and, I, and typically there's transmission. Certain disciples are given the right to teach, and they do. And so I asked, and then they're called Zen masters or what have you. And I asked, what is this teacher? His name is Uchiyama Roshi, Japanese. I said, um, uh, who is he? Uh, has he made any other people into Zen master? And he said, no. He's, he's suggested certain people teach. He, doesn't, he feels Zen is the master. He says he doesn't feel that life can be mastered. And perhaps the Buddha mastered life. I don't know. What I know is what I read in the books. And who knows how close that is to an actual breathing human being. But um, what I think he was saying is the challenges keep coming. They, they, they're unre unrelenting. Have you noticed, those of you who have been around for a while? <laughs> unrelenting. Uh, and we keep trying to fix things by changing the situations and the conditions and people and places to live and occupations. And it's endless the conditions which all arise and pass away, arise and pass away, arise and pass away. So we're already beginning to see an area of learning that has to, that might be helpful. So uh, when we see this, do we learn from it? And I don't think we do. Not very many of us. You know, this e ecology thing, it seems so obvious. No one wants to really destroy the planet, or if they're sane, and yet we engage in things which are destroying the planet. I received my first teaching of this from my grandmother. I owe her a tremendous amount. Um, it's part of why I've always been interested, comfortable with elderly people. Now I've joined the club. And if there's time, I'll go into the kinds of learning that this can help you with. Uh, I see a lot of young faces. Uh, Good, but you know, it doesn't stay this way forever, so I don't know how to break this to you. <laughs> I was once like you.
Okay, but I wasn't smart enough to come to a wonderful school like this. Um, I, I grew up on the Lower East Side. Uh, did you ever see The Godfather? It might be part two. It was replayed in Mobster Week on TV or something. Uh, remember the scene on the Lower East Side where, and I, I grew up, my first five years were there, and I have vague memories, but one thing I do remember, a few things, but one of it's quite vivid is how crowded and dirty the streets were. And people used to throw garbage out the window. So I was eating a banana. Uh, uh, I remember this because it was the first lesson I got from my grandmother. And it was first-rate ecology. And I threw the banana peel when I was done. I threw it out the window. And my grandmother saw me and came over very lovingly said, Larry, we don't do that. And I said, but everyone else does it. Uh, you know, Morris did it. And, you know, uh, you know this one did it. Now and they said... No, they don't realize that we also live in the street. They think that all that counts is their, their apartment, but they, they live in the street as well. So you, we don't do that. We put it in, in garbage cans. That's why they're here. Oh, okay. Common sense, 1.1. 1 .1. Uh, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, so what is this new form of intelligence? Hmm, that's a big one. That's why uh, the Buddhist teaching ex exists. The, the Buddhist teaching starts with learning about yourself in a very ordinary way. Looking at your, learning how to look at yourself exactly as you are. In other words, it doesn't start with imagining yourself as some god or, some, or even enlightened, at least Vipassana. You start with exactly the way you are. So however you are right at this moment, perfect. Just perfect place to start. Um, but we're being, what are, what are, in this school, what kinds of skills are we given? In school, you get skills, learn skills. The skills, one of the main skills is the art of paying attention, of seeing clearly. Uh, many of us can see clearly on our job, externally. But when we turn the camera around or the lens around, uh, to see clearly into that which is seen clearly into a microscope, telescope, etc. Uh, uh, it seems to be a different story. We don't want to do it. We get very excited about new frontiers, unexplored areas, outer space, the ocean. I think what's left out is the mind. Okay, now in meditation, to whatever small degree I've experienced it, what we call the mind uh, whew. It's, it's, a, it's a big place. And we've been cultivating a small patch of it. And I think it probably has something to do with how little of the brain we've not developed. We've been, uh, how much of the brain we've not developed. We've been kind of really refining and improving a small portion of the brain. And we've gotten very, very good at it. And we value it, we reward it, People grow up and they want to get that. Uh, and then we try to solve every problem with that, with the conceptual mind, the thinking mind. And the Buddhist teaching, which is, has been and always is revolutionary, but it's bloodless, is that this doesn't work. Thought and uh, conceptual intelligence has a definite and vital place in human existence. Look, just look at this. At some point, we learned how to speak to each other. I can. Uh, engineer sound, make sounds with my mouth, and words come out, and to some degree, you understand what I'm trying to say. 
maybe you don't hear it, it doesn't mean the same thing to you as to me, of course not. Um, whew, well, we take that for granted. But so there are a lot of things that are amazing that we can do, we humans. Um, what, what haven't we developed? Well, the vast portion of the mind is what you begin to get in touch with when you, as you more and more become intimate with just the ordinary normal workings of your emotional life, your thoughts, images, the stuff of, we start perhaps with breathing, with metta, with all kinds of techniques that are quite accessible, familiar. They're the, the, the play of mind, the mind is fabricating, turning out stuff. None of it lasts, thoughts come and go, images come and go, moods come and go. None of it sticks around. And some of it, which we use to tell ourselves who we are to ourselves and then we present it to others as well, we really believe in that as being solid, those notions as being who I really am. They're notions, they're ideas, and they keep changing. And even in one, if you sit, you can see one minute the mind thinks it's this way and then it's contradicting itself, or well, which one is us? Finally, the message is none of them. They're just notions about yourself. This is the mind telling itself about itself to itself. Well, where did it learn this? From the culture, from your experience, from what is valued and what is devalued. Well, it's not that, that we have to throw that out. We can't. The conventional world, and I don't use that in a derogatory sense, is necessary. Language is. Uh, this building was constructed. So how can we respect that form of intellect and intelligence that has that is necessary for human civilized life to exist and yet understand that there's much more to go. And in meditation, through the various techniques and methods, new people, all I can say, they exist in, in any uh, meditation center that's worth the, its salt, they'll be teaching you that, not just here. Uh, we learn how to, how to enable the mind to come to silence. It's not, a mind, it's not forcing it through uh, kind of exertion, through concentration, where you, you have to, in a sense, get back there, over here, you get back there. Whether it's the breath or whatever, or an image, or the Buddha, or whatever. It's more, as you more and more get to see uh, the workings of your own mind and body without judging it. So that means a prerequisite is we have to learn the art of observation. Uh, it's crucial. To me, that's why if I had to call this one thing, I would call it the way of awareness. But to me, awareness starts off, let's just say for the moment, with a small a. And it winds up that perhaps that's what there is. Finally, you'll find that you are awareness. Why? Because there's something in us that can see all this. All of it. And that, that means it sees everything that's coming and going. And in the Buddhist teaching, he sometimes referred to it as the deathless. It's something that isn't born and doesn't die. In some traditions, it's called the unborn. It was never born, so it's not going to die. Timeless. Uh, the great silence. Awareness itself, in one tradition, I like this one, is called the great seeing. That what is called enlightenment, I prefer the term awakening because it sounds closer to what this is about. Uh, it's implying that we're not fully awake, we're not seeing clearly, because we're seeing through uh, filters of how we've been brought up. For many of you, this is not new, right? 
So a lot, in this school, one of the things we have to do is develop the tools so that the mind becomes steady, stable, calm, clear, and interested in learning about itself. Now, what it's going to encounter is fear. I haven't met anyone yet in almost 40 years of teaching this stuff who has not encountered fear. As you go deeper into yourself, first of all, whatever images you have that are, uh, some of them may be very positive, they'll be shattered. Want to bet? <laughs> or you'll see it's just an image. If I will see none of them, well then, then, who, what it, then the mind will imagine what it's like to not be, to live in, without labeling yourself as something. Conventionally, sure. If someone meets me on the street and they say, hi, my name is uh, Joe or Jane, and I say, well, I don't have a name because I'm a Buddhist. We don't, you know, it's just a uh, I'll tell them, you know, in other words, I, I have appreciation of that level of reality. It's, it enables us to live together. Red means stop, green means go. In some cultures, it may mean the opposite. I don't know. We make it up. Much of our life is made up. We don't make up a tree. We don't make up the ocean. We don't make up a mountain. And there's something in us that we don't make up. So it's the U-turn is an interior journey. Uh, whether you call it silence or some people will call it a treasury of light, no words can do it justice. The, uh, it's beyond conceptual grasp. Some poets can get a little closer. I'm not one of them. Uh, so what we're learning is how to equip ourselves uh, so that the mind can do what I'm saying. So at least two prerequisites. There, there are a number of conditions that enable it. One, you have to be interested. If you're not interested, does anything worthwhile happen in your life if you're not interested? If it's sort of grim, dutiful, I just want to get rid of my stress and be calm. In, out, in, out, in, out. That's not going to last very long. It's too, it's too medicinal in a negative way. Um, if you, for whatever reason, come to see that you're learning how to take a fresh look at, at what this is called life. And I think what you may find is that life, uh, living is about relationship. The main one that, we're, that we need to learn, oh, I, I really must do, do this one because it's part of why I think for the, 20, the 21st century, does anyone have a better term than the information age or the digital age? What would you call it? Anyone? All right. For, for, the, for this evening, let's say the information age. Um, one of the things that we have to learn, these teachings have been around. They're not new. There's, what I'm saying is not new. I'm not particularly original. I may be saying it in a way that I hope is more accessible to us because I'm, I'm, one of, I'm one of you. I'm not special. I'm the same, you know, I, I'm the same. I'm just like you. Uh, if, we, if we're going to do that, um, we have to find a way of, of doing it. Um, and the, right now, there isn't an appreciation of silence. If I say the great silence, that's, let's say, equivalent to enlightenment or awakening, then it sounds like a vacation or a break from what's really life, running, jumping, building, you know, carrying things, adding things up, subtracting them. Um, 
Dharma practice is, is not so much a matter of addition as subtraction. But it's not that you become a, a vacuity. It's that you let go of certain ways of relating to what's going on. And when I use relationship, clearly the main problem is relationship between each other. But it's not just us. It's, it's, it's everyone has been this way for thousands of years. Just read history. The content changes. The costumes change. What we think is worth killing over changes. We, have, we are ingenious at finding ways to make each other suffer and to make ourselves suffer. We're just brilliant at it. Uh, so, but I'm using relationship to be broader than that. What's our relationship to nature? What's our relationship uh, to the body? What's our relationship? Well, of course, that's essential. What's our relationship to things? You tell me something, nothing's left out. Because when you start paying attention, you'll see you have a certain way of relating to what's happening to you. The, the, the most ordinary, you wash the dishes, what's that relationship like? Oh, phew, get rid of this. Oh, that show I want to watch is almost on. Give me that, you know. Uh, so it teaches you about yourself. That's what I mean by life is the great teacher. If you pay attention, relationship is a mirror. It turns bad, shows you how you're doing what you're doing, and it shows you something about yourself. Clearly, the biggest challenge is how we are with each other. Here is one of the reasons why I think it's, it's a form of re-education, always has been. There are a number of changes that seem really evident to me. One is, if you read the history of Buddha Dharma, it has been very, very much uh, the dominant figures have been monastic, monastic life, mainly monks, some, to, second, to some degree nuns, but mostly it's been monks. Now, however that came to be, um, something is happening now which is changing. It's not that I think what's happening now is better than what's gone on for thousands of years, but it's right. Here, we're not monks. Some of you may be, and I don't know, or nuns, but most of us aren't, and we don't want to be. So we need a practice that is truly appropriate for us. And my own conclusion many years ago was that what I learned, because I've lived in monasteries for extended periods of time. I've never been a monk never wanted to be a monk. It's never been a fantasy. I cut my hair very short. This is long for me. And people say, oh, that's your, you wanted to be a monk. It, not at all. It's that when I was a teenager, I wanted to be like, the good basketball players came from Kentucky and Indiana, and they all had short, they had crew cuts. <laughs> or later on, it became I wanted to be a Marine. That's why I have short hair. I've never wanted to be a monk. Jews don't romanticize being a monk. <laughs> It's not allowed. You gotta have a family. The, the rabbis have, have to marry and they gotta have children, otherwise they're not gonna get a job. <laughs> okay, probably something like that perhaps in Islam, I don't know. So every, there are all these human configurations, we can put this together, but, and there have been some extraordinary things that have come out of that decision. Um, but what we find ourselves here is, here we are. And my own feeling was that I had some wonderful teachers who I am as grateful to as to my, well, maybe not quite, as to my parents. I had two wonderful parents and a wonderful grandparents, two of them. Um, but they were not able 
to convey certain things to me that really make it truly helpful for us in the way our life is. So relationship, interpersonal relationship, is central for us. Uh, but it isn't <coughs> limited to that. Let me, uh, yeah, I have a few minutes. Um, how is life teach you? What, how, how did, um, let me give you, uh, it's, this is fairly recent, what I'm about to say. Growing up in the Lower East Side and then in Brooklyn, um, some of you may have grown up closer to nature, small towns, and so forth. Uh, Lower East Side is not a small town. And Brooklyn, there was a, a famous book made into a movie, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. <laughs> okay, it's a slight exaggeration. There are some beautiful parts of Brooklyn, but I didn't live in them. Then again, there was the ocean, which was my, it was that and the public library saved me. So off season, Coney Island, near, uh, there were no tourists and there was no one, it, it just to get away from the madness, it's just to walk up and down the ocean. So I love the ocean. But overall, I have affection for the ocean, but I can't say that my connection to it uh, was the way it is for some people, which are, I have friends who grew up uh, immersed in it, who go kayaking and hiking and, you know, sort of, uh, I'll get it through the National Geographic, you know, channel, that's how, but at any rate, where I live now, my wife and I live with a small backyard, and her ex-husband, believe it or not, has become, a, is a very good friend of ours, and he's a superb gardener. I know nothing about gardening. And a few years ago, uh, when we moved in, the place, the, the backyard was like a, an abandoned lot. Uh, and I wanted to, I was very impressed when I was in Japan practicing Zen there with the Japanese gardens and the tea huts and just the way the Japanese know what to do with nature. Extraordinary. Maybe it's in Asia as well, but certainly what I knew, what I saw in Japan was very impressive. So with his help, little by little, we were doing it. Here are two things that I learned, and it comes out of awareness. One I learned is that as the mind becomes silent, there's a kind of learning that you have access to that you didn't have before. It's not learning from a thought, which is when we think we learned it's from ideas that come out of our head or from a book or from another person, from a teacher, whatever, a computer. Uh, something in the silence is extraordinary. There's the, the, the content of that kind of intelligence is silence. It has no moods. It's not for or against anything. It has no political party. It's, you tell me. And it's an extraordinary part of being human. Some people, when it goes deeply enough, would call it God or mystics talk about it. It's not just in Asia, all religions. Some people have tapped this. It's part of our nature, human beings. All of us have it. Uh, in Buddhism, it's often called the original mind, the primary mind. Uh, it's sometimes called awareness in and of itself. Uh, whatever you want to call it, can show. There are a lot of names for it. Uh, when the mind becomes quiet, and, it, and for a number of years, it would, that would just be maybe 30 seconds, maybe a minute, and I would look out at the same garden, and it's been deepening ever since. Uh, it's different. There's something, the learning that goes on, goes, it becomes more and more bone deep. Now, there are stories 
uh, from ancient China, for example, of someone who attained enlightenment by seeing a leaf fall from a tree fall during the fall. Now, if we all run out and watch leaves start to fall, will we all get enlightened? I doubt it. For some reason, that person was ripe. Their mind was, was ready to see the deeper significance of that, not through explanations or thoughts or what some philosophers said, but they got that we're all part of nature. No one's left out. The universe, everything is, everything is going through change at the same time. Like the myth is, I had it for years, here's the world, I'm born into it, and it's going on, and then at a certain point I will die, but it's, it keeps going on, but I'm gone. The truth is, everything is going through this change simultaneously. Whatever you want to point to, there's no separation. We make the separation. I don't know if I'm getting through to you. If, if not, read Dogen, a great Japanese master. It's all happening, so when we get... Okay, I'll just leave it at that. Uh, I would water the plants and the, the, everything in this garden dutifully. To tell you the truth, whenever it rained, it's a kind of, uh, thank God. <laughs> I don't have to water, water the backyard. Or I was pretty lazy about it. And then when I did, I did it dutifully. <laughs> Look at my watch, keep watering it. That's changed. It's suddenly, now for many of you, you may think, wow, this guy's retarded, he's teaching meditation. <laughs> I suddenly realized I'm helping these plants stay alive. I'm giving them nutrients. They need water. They're not getting it. I'm giving them water. It's like taking care of a child. It's like taking care of yourself. Nourishment, right thoughts, right food, right air, right water, etc., etc. love. And uh, it's not a duty anymore. And if it doesn't rain, it's okay with me. I, I unravel the hose and I go through the whole thing, which is quite far, and it's exciting. But here's another thing that can be learned. I've had a lot of training on aging, sickness, and death. The Buddha was very big on it, and it's not reserved for elderly people. I've been in monasteries, one in Thailand. Ajahn Buddha Dasa was one of my most influential teachers. Learned a lot from him. You walk into one of the meditation halls, and there's a skeleton, a woman's skeleton, a man's skeleton, and a child's skeleton hanging. Uh, morbid? They don't see it as morbid. What they're trying to do is help people. This is part of the re-education I'm getting at. The re-education has to do with starting to see uh, that you're part of nature, you're subject to the same laws, and dharma, dharma means that, the lawfulness of it all. And you, but now that's conceptually, I knew that, of course. Plants die, I die, and so forth. But it hasn't been bone deep. And about a few weeks ago, a leaf fell, and I was on the verge of tears. I'm not saying I was some big enlightenment experience, uh, but I've seen, how many, who hasn't seen thousands of leaves fall? Somehow I got it in a different way. Uh, I felt intimate with that observation. So that, but the mind was very quiet. I had been meditating out there. The mind was very, very still. And so the same world, not the world hasn't changed. I, my capacity to experience changed. Consciousness changed, sensitivity changed. And, whoa, okay, so what I saw was the law of impermanence. Now, 
my training, traditional training uh, in certain schools in Asia, they'll start you off with seeing the impermanence of nature. That seems easier, you know, so you, you actually are asked to contemplate and reflect in seeing the change of seasons, leaves falling, plants, uh, flowers blooming, and then they die and so forth. Fine. Then you move from that, uh, you contemplate your own body. In other words, it's going closer and closer to home. You start to see the impermanent aspect of the body. Okay. And then finally, the most difficult one of all is watching the mind. Now they're all interrelated. So now there's no separation, at least sometimes. Now, does that mean, are you saying that you've, you have no fear of death? I'm 80 years old. I have much less ahead of me than in back of me. So of course I know that I'm going to die soon. I don't know how soon. I'll die when it's, I don't know. I don't have any theories of what determines your time is here, your karma. I don't think that way. Uh, there are many conditions at a certain point, I'll be dead. It'd be as simple as that. Um, I'm not saying I'm cured of any fear of aging, sickness, and death, but uh, my openness to it has changed the way I relate to it. So it's very, very different. And I can tell you how different it is because people from my age generation, like my sister and brother-in-law just visited, Whew, it's tiring. They're both wonderful people, but they're, they're my age, roughly, a little younger. And it's all whining and complaining. And so, and, and I have to kind of, I need a muzzle, like with, you know, rabid, rabid dogs, you know, like, Larry, don't say anything. Because the worst thing I can do is give them an unsolicited Dharma lesson. So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm surprised my wife is still with me because I'm incurable there. She said, you could wake me up in the middle of the night and just give me a subject in my sleep. Uh, how about impermanence? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or to, uh, here's a food. I'm just starting to eat uh, Brussels, Brussels sprouts. Well, it has the following ingredient. <laughs> so as she made it very clear, I've spoiled vegetables for her. I've spoiled. <laughs> I spoiled Buddhism for her. <laughs> Poor thing. Okay. Um, so that's somewhat of a liberation, but it took training to do that. It took training to do that. Now, let's take disease. Um, as you age, and some of you are, you know, you know you'll definitely know what I'm talking about. Uh, when we're very young, we want to get older. Then it starts to change a little bit. But let's say you get something that has a diagnostic term for it. Let's say uh, first your uh, a tooth starts to needs to be re uh, taken out, or a tooth uh, starts to rot, independent of how you've cared for it. Uh, then maybe you need to get a. Oh, I didn't always have glasses, you know. At a certain point, I went. You need glasses. Oh, okay. Uh, my hearing's still pretty good. I don't so far. Don't need any help there. I might. Um, I'm an uh, avid walker. I love to walk and I walk fast. I have to take breaks now. I have to sit. Now, some of the things have diagnostic terms, some, you know, medical terms for it. I respect those terms. But I also, and I learned this in the Thai forest tradition, they'll say, uh, they'll say, 
older people have an advantage over younger people because nature is teaching you wisdom all the time. You know, uh, how lucky we are that our teeth are falling out and that, you know, we can't see and we can't hear and we can't smell because it's saying, get it? <laughs> uh, I guess not. So, so it doesn't mean that you love it and you might feel, uh, you know, the inconvenience or the physical pain of it. But it has a larger context, much larger context. And that, those kinds of reflections. And then finally, one that a number of you have heard, well, you know, I've written about it, so many of you have heard this. But it's a good one to show you how practical this can be. This is the kind of learning. The, this is a school in the sense you learn some basics here. And on retreats and on your own when you come here and sit, I hope it's a place that can be a refuge for you where you can have some a tranquil contemplative time to just be and come here and then go back into whatever your world is. Some years ago, I guess, again, it's a dental story, a little bit, but not much. I was coming from a dentist in Brookline where everyone's either a Russian or a dentist. <laughs> and so I'm waiting for the, I get on the T. If you've heard it and you want to close your eyes, don't snore, but you can go to, um, and there are no seats, so I'm holding on. Uh, this is uh, Coolidge Corner. I have a ways to go to get to Central Square. And suddenly a young woman gets up, smiles at me and gives me her seat. So oh, what a nicely brought up young woman. How nice she has nice parents. So I sit down. Obviously she's getting off at the next stop. The next stop comes, she doesn't get off. Then the next stop comes, she doesn't get off. Then the third stop comes, she doesn't get off. Finally I get it. Oh, I see what it is. I thought I was the guy who gives up my seat to people, which I've been I've been brought up to be a gentleman and also if anyone's uh, uh, their body needs help, you give up your seat for them, and if someone's older. Now it turns out, uh, so I said, oh, I can just hear her mind. Uh, take a load off your feet, Pop, you know. Uh, <laughs> hey, hey, old timer, you know, like, uh, just sit down. And, you know, don't worry about it. I'm just, I, I can handle standing. It's no big deal for me. And my mind got hysterical. <laughs> it just, it, it was sort of, it started to realize, this is a, was a new place for me. And then it made up excuses. Well, it must be because I just went to the dentist and I look, I had been through something and so I must have looked 10 years older than I really am. <laughs> uh, and it made up other excuses. And then finally realized, I, then I, when you do enough of this, it's the funniest. You don't need Saturday Night Live anymore. <laughs> Your own mind is tragicomico, it, and it becomes more and more hilarious. The mind is reassuring itself all day, then it's tearing itself down, then it's building itself up, tearing someone else down, then correcting it. If you come here, we're telling you all these ways you've got to be a good person. That person, a schmuck, is a jerk. No, he isn't. Wrong speech. Oh, what am I? You, so you're conflict and you're fighting with yourself. He's not a schmuck. He's a good person. Look, he, I've seen him. He helped someone cross the street. And then later on, yeah, maybe he did, but he's a schmuck anyway. You know? uh, so, so what happened was when the laughter died down, I just watched it. And if any of you love to just watch and learn, to observe, uh, let's say you love nature, uh, to, to observe, uh, I've always been a people watcher since very young, but I do, uh, you're watching your own mind. You can explore fear, you can explore 
uh, like in the monastic tradition, um, pleasure is sort of down because if you're a monastic, they have what's good for them is one meal a day, no sex, just a few robes, in, at least in the Thai forest tradition and other orthodox traditions. That isn't what's good for us. So they don't have a choice as to what they're going to eat. So they have to learn, and there's some good training that comes just eating whatever you're given. There's something good that comes out of that. But they also can't take care of their bodies in the way in which we can. Now, if we follow that, it's to me stupid. So that, for example, take the body. Uh, food makes a difference in terms of consciousness. Some food makes the mind very heavy. Some food makes the mind agitated, and some food enable, uh, inclines the mind to be much more calm and clear. And little by little, if you start caring about the quality of your awareness, you see that diet has a role to play. I'm not going to say, eat your way to enlightenment. I'm not saying that. Uh, but what I'm saying is areas that were not, uh, we weren't encouraged to look at except to be moderate. Uh, that's more, it's very useful for everyone, but also especially for monks. Uh, so there's a lot of, uh, the emphasis here is on exploration and learning. Rather, it's trading in all this judgment. We're just judging, the judging mind, and trading in at least sometimes for the, mi the mind that wants to understand. And there's a real joy as you watch anything in the mind, and without trying to get a result, and just see your mind at play. And no one can do that for you. No one. Uh, you can read all the books in our library. Uh, it, it's just, they're just menus. Glor glory, they're just good menus. And encouragement and pointing in the right direction. Finally, there's only one place to look. It's in you. It's in your own mind. So we need a practice that's for lay people, that's appropriate for the information age. We have to, and I feel that the way of awareness, whether you think of yourself as a Buddhist or not, is not as relevant as are you interested in the quality of your life. And that requires, are you interested in the quality of your ability to, to, be, to pay attention, to be aware, and to learn from what you see and hear, both internally and externally. Okie dokie. Um, you're free now to go to a nice cafe or whatever. I can't. That's my job. I have to. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.